Irish and Rob McGregor welcome you to a place where all kinds of phenomena flourish. Voices whisper, ancient secrets, signs and symbols are abundant. UFOs, ETs, ghosts, and even the dead move about freely. Here we meet authors, researchers, and investigators of the mysterious, the strange, and of the inexplicable anomalies that surround us. Step out of the everyday world and take a journey into the mystical underground. Welcome to the Mystical Underground. Thank you for joining us. This is Trish McGregor. And Rob McGregor. And our tech magician, John Posey. You can go to our website, 111.com, to find out about our nonfiction books, including the most recent one, Phenomena Harnessing Your Psychic Abilities. And you can visit our blog at blog.synchrosecrets.com, where we make regular posts. Our guest today is R.K. Springfield, CEO of Training Standards International. He's a motivational speaker, but the number one compliment he has received is being called the business whisperer. He trains members of management teams in strategic leadership, project management, and a variety of managerial skills. He is also the author of The Human Experience, The Four Armies of the Earth. And he is also working on a book, with some help from me, called The Black and Blue Baby, about his upbringing. R.K. grew up in Chicago in an in an extremely abusive environment. He has managed to break out of a long lineage of men who are abusive to their sons generation after generation. In our case, case, he also had a mother who was abusive in her own way and later a stepmother uh, with more of the same, only she added black magic to the mix through her voodoo practice. We're going to talk about all of that and how John was guided through his childhood. John, no, no, R.K. R.K. I'm sorry. <laughs> R.K. Sorry. was guided through his uh, childhood. If only you knew how funny that was. <laughs> well, yeah. R.K. Uh, through his childhood by a spirit being who came into his life when he died in an accident and was then revived. Welcome, R.K. Sorry for calling you, John. <laughs> Uh, you, you know that that doesn't matter to me at all, so that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Okay, I want to start right away and say that uh, you are willing to talk publicly about your horrific upbringing because you're hoping that you can reach young people who are undergoing similar abusive treatment and that uh, you want to tell them not to give up and that there is a way out. So is that your message? Yeah, that's a large part of my message. Uh, Thing is, I usually train adults, and so while while we're writing this, I'm also looking towards the adult community as well to start looking inward for mm-hmm. change. You know, right now we're seeing a lot of protests, uh, Black Lives Matters, and, and that sort of thing. Black Lives Matter, and if we're going to make any changes, they have to be internal as well as external. So some of the things that people don't talk about, it's time for us to start talking about those to start making some changes. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Tell us about the first time you met your father when you were three three years old. What happened? Yeah. Uh, so first, I I should say that I have a peculiar memory. So uh, most people who know me really think it's great, but it's really interesting when you're looking at a painful, abusive history. So I have everything in 
perfect in what they used to say, 3D panoramic. So it's an eidetic memory, right? Uh, yeah, that's what they they call uh-huh. it. But I've had so many brain injuries that I I wonder. Uh, <laughs> so the first time I met my father, I was born in '67, so he just coming back from Vietnam. I should say that uh, my mother uh, canoodled with others, to put it nicely. So I had a lot of uncles and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. so for a week or so, all the adults were exciting the other kids, the older kids. And they were saying things like, daddy's going to be here. Daddy's coming. And I thought it was someone's name <laughs> because I had no point of reference for what daddy meant. And mm-hmm. so then uh, the day comes and I didn't know the days of the week yet. They were all pretty much the same. I was three years old and there's knocking the door. This guy comes in and I thought he looked like the scariest uncle I'd ever seen (laughs) wearing clothes that were matching and had stuff on it you know his uniform and his eyes looked wild Hmm. and uh, so my mother put us into the kitchen closed this swinging door and then went back and talked to him and the next thing we know there's a bunch of racket and the older kids climbed down it took me a little bit longer I was never very coordinated, and that survives to this day. I can trip over my own feet going down the stairs. So I finally climb down. I walk into the other room, and they are physically fighting, she and this daddy person. And my uh, older siblings are screaming daddy and are crying, and my uh, mother says, get a knife. I mean, they're physically just beating the hell out of each other. Pardon my French there. And... So I am standing there. I just thought it was interesting. I'd never seen this before. And uh, so he says, go, go, don't get a knife. And she turns and looks directly at me and says, uh, my family calls me blue because of my personality. And she says, blue, get a knife. And so you do as you're told. So I went back into the kitchen and I had to figure out how to get a knife because I was too short to reach them. I knew what a knife was, but I had to figure out how to move a chair and climb on the chair, climb onto the counter, and then turn around and open the knife drawer upside down so that I could grab the knife and then climb back down carefully. Meanwhile, the fight's still going on, the screaming's still happening. And I finally climb back down and I go into the other room, push the door, and they're fighting. And he sees the knife first, and so he starts moving towards me. And again, I thought he was a terrifying guy who was beating my mother. I didn't know who this person was. So I stepped back away from him. And she sees, she looks where he's looking and she grabs the knife and she cuts his throat. Not, uh, she doesn't kill him, but the fight is now over because she has a knife. And I, I learned later that. My mother happened to be one of the most dangerous people in Chicago with a knife. No one <laughs> followed her with a knife. So she that day I met my, my father, and he said he hated me from that moment forward. Hmm. But he carried that scar with him for the rest of his life. Did he get, did he get uh, medical help for it? Do you know? Um, you know, he left. I wouldn't know. She, hmm. After that, she got him a towel from the kitchen we we call him you know dish how would you dry the towels with uh, the dishes with and brought it to him and they were talking and he and i'm just looking at him because i'm observing 
I'm wondering what is next in this insanity. And he kisses the oldest, my older sisters, and he says he'll pick them up soon. And he takes the stuff. She had already packed his things and he leaves. Hmm. And he and I just look at each other and he reaches down to hug me, not knowing that I absolutely could not stand being touched. So again, I step back. And so, yeah, that was the day I met my, my father. Hmm. Great. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And yeah, uh, off, to the, off to the races. Right. Yeah. So, and you were scarred too for, uh, uh, you know, as well as he, he was in a, you were scarred in a different way, of course. That's the thing. He, it wasn't just his scar on his throat that had walked out. I think that was one of those portents of the future. Everyone mm-hmm. in that room was scarred. Yeah. All the, but it, most especially the children. Yeah. Yeah. So there's plenty of abuse that uh, went on for <clears throat> years after that. And uh, one of the things that uh, they they thought you were different. You're you're a different kind of kid. You were uh, you didn't smile much. You didn't laugh. Um, you didn't dance. Everybody, <laughs> the kids were dancing. You wouldn't dance. Uh, and you, later, as an adult, you learned that uh, you're on the autistic uh, spectrum and that you had uh, high-functioning Asperger's. So how did that play into your upbringing? Well, it's it's really interesting. Uh, on, on my mother's side, twins are, it's really common for people to have twins, but it's also common when you have twins in my family that you have to be very diligent because there's a, some, it's very likely that they're going to be born on the spectrum on the autistic mm. scale. Uh, but we have to look out for that for children. You know, it, it is something that's genetic sometimes. So in this instance, um, my mother has a set of twins, Alfred and Albert, my uncles, one of whom was criminally insane. And the other one was just a little, he was, functioning he could have a job and that sort of thing but not quite off the spectrum and then she hmm. had another set of friends who both spent most of their lives in and out of facilities huh so so she had two sets of twins or were these uh siblings okay so, okay yeah so her mother uh, my grandmother right was so in that family um when i was born and i was like i didn't talk until i was two but then I just started speaking and I started walking at the exact same time. And it was simply because that was the only time I had anything that I wanted to say to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us that. Were, tell us that. Yeah. yeah. Tell us that story. About, uh, tell us that story, Arky, about uh, when you first walked and talked. That was, that's interesting. Okay. So I, I spent most of my time simply observing them. And I thought that that's what everyone was doing around me. Again, um, I don't know how high-functioning I was to begin with, but the abuse, in a weird way, made it made me more functional because I hmm. had to pay more attention to things around me. So I didn't walk or talk very much, but uh, one night they were all watching television and my sisters were being very loud, and I absolutely abhorred loud noises and you know, with Asperger's, that really shakes me. And so I stood up and I walked over to her and my mother is reading a magazine. She looks over and she goes, are you walking? And I said, I don't like them. <laughs> and she goes, what did you say? Did you say something? 
And I said, yes, I don't like them. Make them stop. And that's the first you'd ever spoken? Yes. So she calls her mother, who's in the kitchen. She goes, he just just walked and talked. And (laughs) my grandmother says, oh, say something. Say mama. And I'm like, why would I? Why would I say, no, I don't like them. Make them stop. And so they used to bring people over to the house to, I was like a, it was like my trick. I was, <laughs> and they would all walk around. I had a playpen and they would all walk around and she would say, hey, say something. And you know, the, the other people would say, what, what does he say? And I would say, what do you want me to say? <laughs> and they would all clap and think that weird and then they would say oh he doesn't know what he's really saying and she would say ask him ask him there's something wrong with him and they would go do you know what you're saying and they would use baby talk and i absolutely i couldn't stand baby talk so i would say please stop stop that and go away everybody go go away <laughs> because there was too much noise and too much attention and people clapping and yeah, I grew up like that, but they, they knew there was something wrong with me. But in that culture of the time, they thought I was like her siblings. Wow. I was someone mm. to watch. So, uh-huh. Because no one knew what Asperger's was back then. No. All, all they knew was mental illness or, or physiological illnesses, biological, uh, chemical imbalances, that sort of thing. So they had no idea. Uh, Rob and I were... I, uh, was talking to my grandmother, I take a conversation with Rob, and she tells the story about me memorizing books before I, by accident, before I was four, and convincing hmm. her that I could read. And I said, Grandmother, didn't you think it was strange that a two and three year old memorized books? <laughs> God. And she goes, Well, you had me convinced you could read. I could take any book off the shelf and you would follow it with your finger and say it word for word. But if I pointed at a word, you couldn't read it because you couldn't read. <laughs> I was like, wow. grandmother, don't you think, didn't you think that was odd? <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, well, you were, you were really strange. It's one of the things that Junior, that's her son, my father, because it's one of the things that Junior hated. You knew things that you had no right to know. Hmm. You were a weird, strange kid. So, yeah. And then things got stranger when you turned four years old. You had an accident and died, uh, but were revived. Uh, Tell us about that accident and what happened when you were dead. Yeah. Yeah. It it still shapes my life to this day. So first, I need to say that uh, I had been stuck inside for some time I had. They, the adults wouldn't tell me what it was, but I think it was meningitis based upon the symptoms. But, wow. uh, so I was stuck inside for quite some time. The first day I was able to go out and the other kids were out and it was summertime in Chicago, the west side of Chicago. Uh, and my uncle, Douglas, had turned on the fire hydrant, meaning he had illegally opened it so the water <laughs> came out and we could run and play in the water. Right. That's very common. So I, I could finally go out and with all the assurances from the older kids, they would watch me, you know, and my mother was very worried. So I go out, and they're playing King of the Hill on this fire hydrant. God. Across the street from, from this fire hydrant is a bar. And it's 
you have to go back in time to one of those bars, like from Shaft or something in 1970s, mm-hmm. uh, Chicago, West Side Chicago. And so that underneath the trihydrant where there's water is spring, we are jumping over the glass from the bottles, hmm. the whiskey bottles, the Coca-Cola, all of that stuff. Well, I don't know any of this. I just know that there's bottles because I've been, oddly enough, the night before I was looking at them. So I get on top of the fire hydrant because the big kids are like to let the little kids on. And uh, another cousin, not no malicious intent, but you know how kids are, he pushes me. I fall face first and flat into God. all of this glass. Jeez. Uh, the first thing I remember is like standing up and having uh, one of those old Coke bottles. Remember those, when people say Coke bottle glasses, those Coke bottles, right. Coca-Cola, sticking out of the side of my right cheek, and I could, Ooh. and I was cutting my tongue on it. My so God. it was all the way through. It almost went through my, my entire mouth. I have a scar on the interior of my left cheek as well. Jeez. But the one that everyone can see is on my right cheek. Uh it was in my hand. There was some sticking out of my hand, all over my body, my chest, my genitals, my foot, everywhere. And then suddenly, I was next to that body. Hmm. And all the kids are screaming, and they're kind of trying to drag this lifeless corpse. The thing is, I couldn't hear them screaming anymore. I could just see them. But I just thought it was interesting. I didn't feel any, I wasn't terrified or anything like that. I've heard of older people when they die that that's what happens. You know, they didn't know what was happening. There was none of that. I was perfectly fine just hearing Mm. about this body. And imagine the first time in your life being able to see yourself the way others see you outside of your body. Were you above above yourself? Not yet. Not yet. As the kids were dragging me. And I'm looking at the blood and I'm looking at this body and I thought, huh, that's interesting. And then suddenly I'm diagonally above them. And it took every bit of my will power. And for when you're four, I mean, that's a lot. I was facing the wrong direction. I was facing away from it. Hmm. And I, so I had to force, I mean, just push and push to turn just to turn my head a little bit to see what was going on there. As I do that, I see the adults are screaming. My mother comes running out of the apartment building and she had these floppy uh, rabbit bunny slippers. And she left one of them at the bottom of the stairs. And I remember thinking, oh, she's gonna be upset about that. And she pushes the kids, grabs my body and just starts running towards the hospital, which was about three blocks away. (laughs) By then, I'm somewhere else. I'm in front of a mountain and it's wishing by me really, really fast. And again, I'm, I just think this is interesting. No fear, no emotional context. I didn't care about the body. I didn't care about any of that. Did you, did you know you were dead? That, that's a interesting question. I didn't have the concept of Uh dead and alive yet. So it was just something, everything that happened to me every day, was I think because the Asperger's it was simply something that happened uh-huh. and you just had to learn about it you had to learn as quickly as possible so I wound up on top of this mountain and I look over to the left and there are other beings there and it kind of the only thing that ever describes it is uh, the Grand Canyon hmm. 
it looked like the Grand Canyon. And these other beings were, I saw two of them and they were discussing me and I knew that somehow I wasn't supposed to be there. And then there's a gentleman in front of me in white. And I, he, I sit down cross-legged and he's talking to me. And he told me a lot. But I, I thought, oh, that was interesting. The only time I ever felt anything, though, is when he said, you can't stay here. Mm. It's, you can't. You have to go back. There's things you have to do yet. And everyone has a, a designation. Everyone has an assignation. Sorry. Everyone has an assignation. And so do you. You have to go back. I'm so sorry. Hmm. And I cried. I just started bawling. <clears throat> so this sort of hole opens up behind me. He does something. And he goes, don't worry. You're not going to be alone. You're not wow. going to be alone. And then he pushes me back through this hole. Hmm. And for a second, for a, a, a period of time that it's forever and too quick to judge, I understood more than I had ever understood before. Hmm. And then I'm in more pain than I've ever been in my entire life. And the, the I see a nurse screaming, we got him, we got him, he's back. God. And I am screaming because they have put something over my face, but I'm in so much pain. And they put the, the, the bandage over my cheek, and then they put the mask on me. And as I'm going under, this, the nurse says, don't worry, baby, we got you. You're okay. You're okay. You're going to be okay. And I'm crying. And then the voice that said, don't worry, you won't be alone, in the darkness, as I'm going under, says, don't worry, I'm still here. Wow. Hmm. What, I, I'm just curious, what, what did this person look like? Do you, do you remember? I, I'm, I could not describe them. Hmm. It was, so, okay, this is, I've never, I've, I think the only person I've ever told this to is my brother. Okay. Really interesting, which, which, so I've never told anyone, but uh, I think it has to be a part of the message now. Uh, again, with everything that's going on, but uh, in the world, not just in America. So you have to take this with me, okay? I know it sounds weird, but just let me explain and close your eyes for a second and imagine this, that uh, in your world is so incredibly small. There are a billion, billion of them. And... Everything, you, you know, in the Bible, how it begins with uh, first there was darkness mm -hmm. and then God said, let there be light. Imagine just a, an oblong cylinder of light and light and everything outside of it, it's darkness. Mm. There's this part of it that's light. So you zoom in on just one small planet it would be smaller than a, a pinprick. It's so small. But on that planet, there are people who have open connections. Have you ever uh, have you ever been in a room and right before someone you know walks into the room, you you look up because you can feel them coming. Yes. Yeah. That's an active connection. That means that you're actively connected to them spiritually or, and I say spiritually, but you know, it's, it's more than that. 
that's an active connection. And our job here is to have active connections. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Now, imagine if uh, you could, you, you, you have a dog. Right. Imagine if you could actively connect with your dogs. And through that connection, though, because you are operating in a different vibration, you actively connect with them and it alters them. Mm-hmm. So now suddenly your dogs, who are usually colorblind, start seeing uh, a German Shepherd or a German Venture, and then they start collectively gathering together and saying, well, their fur is a different color, so we don't like them. Hmm. That's what humans are doing. And instead, we're here for active connections. We are here, we are luminescent beings. It's, it's ridiculous that sci-fi seems to be the only place that's gotten it right, that we're all <laughs> absolutely connected. Yoda, the Yoda mm-hmm. said that all things are connected, and it's right. not as true. The thing is, growth can happen individually, but it also needs to happen as a species. And this species is not quite growing yet. It's in this cylinder of life, in this free experiment, there's just just above us, there's another reality. There's another place where maybe they don't eat the flesh of animals to sustain each other. They mm-hmm. have this active connection which sustains each other. But there's another one below us and another one below that. And the lower you get, the darker it gets, and the more ravenous the hunger for the light is, the, the wow. more angry they are. And we all know that when people are afraid of the dark, inherently, that's what we're afraid of, the dark. We have forgotten, or maybe we don't know yet, we are here to foster our active connections. We're here to learn and to help each other. And not not liking someone because of the color of their fur is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's laughable. Hmm. Getting to know someone and activating a connection with them, the more of those connections you have, the more luminescent you become. That's your purpose. Yeah. And you learned all of this at four because of this <laughs> yeah. experience. Oh my God. It, it, yeah, I wasn't really popular for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you you had mo you had uh inspiration or things that were coming to you called shining moments that when you connected with this voice yeah i I never knew when it happened um so it taught me how to think Hmm. um i was trying to figure out a word i I spent a lot of time alone it was just easier for everyone if they just left me alone (laughs) and so i would sit in the living room and i would look out the window and i was trying to think of a word and the I have um I call them now occlusions where everything else sort of drops for a second mm-hmm. and I'm given information and, and it's the I'm same sitting, being yes it's the exact mm-hmm. same being in my entire life mm-hmm. and in this instance the information given was the way that your mind works is the it was literally a rolodex which I found hilarious because I also had to be given the information for what a Rolodex was (laughs) at the exact same time. So in a split second, uh, cogito ergo sum, I became, because I started thinking, Mm -hmm. I learned how to think. So I think, oh, everyone goes through this. I was, this is part of the understanding. 
Everyone has to go through this. Everyone has to become a, a living, thinking being at some point. For some people, it takes most of their lives, though. I had no mm-hmm. idea. So for me, it changed the way that I viewed things. I understood that everything that I experienced was in my memory. I simply had to access it. Hmm. And it made things a lot easier. Another time, I uh, I used to dress myself because <laughs> I found it interesting to do buttons and, and snaps and that sort of thing with my little fingers. And I didn't care for other people doing it. But you have to remember, uh, uh, there was so much violence in this one that every time someone else dressed me or brushed my hair, I was they would hit me or, you know, slap me or something. So uh-huh. it was just easier for me to learn to do it on my own. And so I wanted to know how to tie my shoe, and I had a shiny moment. That's what I called them back then, where I was given the information. This is how you tie your shoe. Wow. And, Nobody and showed you so, how to tie your shoe, right? No. And I, I was gone for a second. I don't know how else to put it. You're big for a second, meaning mm-hmm. your consciousness sort of expands for a second. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, of course. And mm-hmm. it's the same thing I described as that what reality really is when I went through that portal, it was such a quick flash of that. There's so much more, but that's what my brain could comprehend. Hmm. And for this, it was, it's always directed this here. This is what you want to know. And smart for you, my entire. Go on. Yeah. You said it was like, not like somebody giving you instructions, how to tie your shoe like verbally, but like an information download that just came yeah, to you. You're given you're simply given the knowledge yeah. and mm. it's in such the the timing is remarkable in that same split second as questions come up it's like talking to someone in a speed language mm. where, oh this question came up here's the answer this question came up here's the answer okay you did great and it's it's almost like that but no words it's just done huh. with sort of feelings so after that i tied my shoe and uh, well, my right one was tied after the shining moment, and that was part of the instruction, I suppose. And I was like, oh, so I can do that. And so I just did it with the left, and my mother came out, and she said, who's awake? I was, you know, a child, and I looked at her, and if I had nothing to say, I would simply look at them. And she go, she says, are you, are you alone? And I couldn't answer that question either, because... I'm never really alone. <laughs> so I just stared at her and she goes, oh, okay, I'm going to make some food. And I know somebody's awake because I know you didn't tie your shoe. And I looked down in my shoes and I looked back up at her and she understood this language very well. And she goes, boy, you did not just tie your shoes. So she untied my shoes and I retied them. Wow. <laughs> Really, like I, I just did that. Why would you untie my shoe? And so I just retied them. And she just backs up and she goes, "I can't even. I'm going to bed." And she went back to bed. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, well, was this being uh, with you through elementary school and high school? I mean, yes, yes. Throughout my life. Now you have to understand. With me, it's not quite accurate either. It's it's more of a, a resource. Mm-hmm. It, it's not something that protects you because that was part of my understanding too. Everything that I was experiencing, I chose it. I had to experience it. Hmm. Bless you. The same thing that kept me on this planet when I died 
is the reason that I'm here. Curiosity. Uh, mm. Can you the, tell the, us one of... Oh. Wait, let me finish. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, the simple act of turning that I was telling you about when I was dead, when right. I was being drawn away, the simple act of turning meant something. That mm. simple act. And so I was told that too. That, that meant that there was something special. And it hasn't been decided yet. Huh. So you, that was a part of it. Curiosity has been there. And this, this being has been there right along beside my curiosity, almost like answering my biggest, deepest questions. Well, okay. This is a real silly question. Uh, let's say you're taking a test and you don't know the answer. Would you get the answer from the no. being? No. no. Okay. Um, well, this is about these things. things. Yeah. Uh -huh. My brother was just talking about this. He said, uh, I asked him, what do you spend most of your time on thinking about? And he said, well, it depends on the day. You know, sometimes it's about work or sometimes it's about will I ever find love and that sort of thing. And I, I said, oh, wow, I, I often wondered that. And he goes, you spend all of your time thinking about the universe and construct, constructs, don't you? And I go, Yes. I spend all of my time thinking about reality hmm. because that is the first experience I had. Right. Hmm. And I'm still unpacking it. Yeah. Uh -huh. But the, the being didn't help you with tests, but also didn't help you from getting abused. Can you tell like a typical abusive experience that you underwent as a child? Uh, yeah, that's a lot. So Without getting too gross. <laughs> Yeah, no worries. Uh, first, um, the being I would not have the experience that I, I met, that I'm required to have if I got help with birth things with math tests. Mm -hmm. I did help with uh, don't take that street. That's uh -huh. the kind of help I get. Yeah, uh, or don't do that. Uh, I, when I was a kid, I was about to, we, we lived in an apartment building and our apartment was on the roof and it, it was in Chicago and it had snowed just on Stony Island. And on the other side of the apartment building, there were several restaurants and a gigantic open parking lot. So they pushed all of the snow up against the side of our apartment building. I was six. I went inside, got a trash bag, and I was sure that I could jump off of this building Hold this trash bag like a parachute, and it would be fine. I was standing on the roof to do it, and that's the only time the guy pushed me back. <clears throat> and the information was, you will not float, you will sink. <laughs> you will be trapped because you won't be able to move as you come back to snow. You will suffocate, no one will see you, and that is not how you are destined to die. So mm. don't make that choice. Wow. Oh, that's incredible. Does that make more sense? Yes. Yeah, yeah that, that's... Yeah. Wow. So when you talk Does this about guy have a name? <laughs> no. 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 Not uh, even one you've given it? No. It's okay. not... Interesting. That's a whole other question. Because even my name, no one actually knows my name. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I don't mean my physical name. I mean, uh, that was one of the things that we discussed when I was dead, that... Uh, you build your name hmm. because people use it incorrectly. They use names incorrectly. Mm -hmm. um, 
when you talk about abuse, uh, typical abuse of gay, I have to say that you, you have to remember that norm is what everyone experiences until they leave their environment. Mm-hmm. In my environment, I thought every other kid was being beaten. I thought every other kid was mm-hmm. being kicked, punched, raped. I thought mm-hmm. every other kid was experiencing that. I didn't know that it was abuse until I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And my, uh, after uh, my, uh, I was in Michigan, and the next door neighbor, we were watching a commercial, and it was about child abuse. This woman had a hanger, and I giggled because her daughter was like, I wish my mom didn't do that. And I turned to my neighbor and I said, what are they talking about? And she goes, why are you laughing at that? That's child abuse. And I said, oh, wait, was, was I abused? And she goes, honey, no one was more abused than you kids. And I was wow. like, oh, okay. So when you talk huh. about typical dates, I literally had no idea. So these two people, and this is part of, the culture sometimes for some families, these two people were so angry and so hurt and so needy. They needed someone to love, someone to care about so badly that they thought, oh, children will fix this. Hmm. And then they had children, but they remained themselves. Each one of them at some time, uh, grandparents and parents said these words to me. I didn't know how to love you because no one ever showed me how to love. Wow. When you say abuse, you have to start from there. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. That's incredible. So on a a typical day, as I got older, it was nothing to wake up being raped. And then you got beaten by someone else. And then you went off to school and uh, in some neighborhoods where there's lower funding for education, you get a lower quality of teachers who are emotionally, physically abusive and mm-hmm. don't always, no one quite knew what to do with me. I was a very odd kid. And so some teachers thought it was more interesting to uh, make fun of me or. The to, teachers did? Yes. Odd. This world is very interesting to people who are different. And I, I remember once I had a teacher. I, so I woke up uh, being raped. And then um, someone else raped me before school. God. And then uh, I was eating a peanut butter, hot peanut butter sandwich, which is my favorite sandwich to this day, and watching this old Popeye cartoon. And I didn't know that my father was home. And he came out and slapped me off of the chair, and I dropped my peanut butter bread, and I had to eat it anyway, even though it hit the floor, because, you know, you don't waste food, and you have to. And then I went to school, and someone, one of the other kids was laughing at me. He goes, you smell like you've been crying. And so then the teacher starts making fun of it, and I go through the day like that. I get back home, and I'm trapped inside because you're not allowed to go outside. And you can't make any noise inside the house because then you get beaten. And that is a regular day. Then you have to maybe cook, maybe pitch in, or maybe you don't eat that day because they don't feel like giving you food. And they will go out and get food, and then they go back to their bedroom, and they eat their food, and you just go to bed. 
my God, RK, it's amazing you're, you're even here to talk about this. And, and then they will wake you up in the middle of the night, right? Uh, if that was the flavor of the day, yeah. It, there was nothing to be waking up <clears throat> by, well, they beat us with an extension cord. I got beat with bamboo fishing poles. With I have a scar on my head from my mother hitting me with an iron because uh, I annoyed her while she was ironing. Um, a broom handle, you name it, we got beaten with it. But usually the extension cord was the thing that, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning and you didn't do something or she was just drugged out or he was just angry and off his insulin. You never knew what it was, but you knew you had to get up. There are times when you, I got woken up that way with the other kids and we were on our hands and knees scrubbing the floor because apparently that's what they required at that time. And again, you have to remember, I always thought, even while it was, I was going through it, first of all, I am not going to live this way. I decided that very, very early that something needed to change, but I couldn't put my finger on what it was. <clears throat> the other thing was, I knew that this was a distortion because of my death experience. I knew that people living like this and acting like this was a distortion it's, it's not what you're meant to be. It's, it's like uh, we used to be so hungry all the time that our bellies would distend a little bit. And I thought of that physical distortion the same way when I look at the people around me in this culture, it was a distortion of what you were meant to be. And for my father, I know he was so angry. He came back from Vietnam and he would tell, say how he, he thought he was losing his mind. Nobody ever loved him. And then he went through this horrible experience with his father. He went to Vietnam, he came back and people hated him. He couldn't wear his uniform. He was so proud of it. And where you, what do you do with all that anger? What do you do with all that hatred? Mm -hmm. And he was in fights and he got uh, arrested and the cops and that sort of, and where, where does all the same anger go? If you're distorted, you, you abuse the only innocence around you. Right. And that's what they were doing. And I understood that my siblings all had different viewpoints. <clears throat> so you never told any of your teachers about this abuse or just because you thought it was normal? Well, again, in the black culture, you see, I saw someone yell at their child once and I thought, oh, they got off easy. <laughs> <laughs> Like, they didn't hmm. get hit or anything, but there are little clues there that, like, the, my guy told me to pay attention to. Uh, we were visiting Michigan once, and again, did I knew nothing about abuse. I just knew that this is how our lives were. And mm -hmm. so my father was making me sweep, the use one of those swisher brooms. Do you remember they used to be, like, very small brooms, handheld brooms? That right. Would, and so I'm, I'm, I was told to sweep out the carpeting in the station wagon. And as I'm doing that, and I was very proud of my work, the reason why I thought I was so good at that is because I was OCD. Uh -huh. <laughs> it had to be perfect. And so he came out, and the broom was so old that some of the strands from the broom had uh -huh. fallen. And he just starts beating me. And my great-grandparents, his grandparents are standing there, and as he's beating me, he picks me up and by my throat and he's punching me and then he drops me. And so I'm on the ground 
and I, I'm coughing and I look over because I hear a commotion next door about, uh, I don't know, 20 yards away and maybe, maybe 10. And next door is a woman whose name was Miss Alberta Love and her husband, Theotis, and her, her back is to him and he's holding her arms and they're struggling with each other and she has a gun in her hand. Oh my God. If he hits that boy one more time, I'm going to blow his brains out. And he goes, these are not your kids. These are not your kids. And she goes, I don't care. Look at that little baby. And then my grandparents said, come on inside. Stop hitting him. But before that, there was nothing. And there were little clues like that that it wasn't normal. Hmm. But I had no idea. So your grandparents just stood there and did nothing until the woman... The neighbor. Uh, the next door neighbor, yeah. Uh-huh. Because they knew her and, you know, it looks was bad. much more shameful. <laughs> yeah, it looks bad. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> God. So one form of abuse that, uh, that you went through is the parents, this is a strange one, they've messed with your name. <laughs> Can you talk about that and how you oh, became yeah, our yeah, that's why I said I really, well, Okay, so that's two different things. The parents messing with the name is about, again, them. Um, so that's why you laughed about Rob calling you John, right? (laughs) Yeah, because I've been called everything. So really, you know, uh, so when I was born, I was born at a research institute, uh, Illinois research. And, um, my mother, I was a twin. And so my mother was kind of naming me Tracy and my twin sister, Stacy, uh, on the same day that her first son was born she lost another child so she never quite recovered from that so my father who was in town i guess he hadn't tripped off yet was walking through a bad snowstorm because he he goes yeah even the day you were born was one of the worst days of my life because there were no buses running because of this snowstorm this blizzard so i had to walk up to the hospital and he was saying that, like, you really should apologize for that. And I remember just looking at him going, you are ridiculous. So he walked by a place called Kelly Springfield Tire Company. And so he goes, that's when I got there. Your mother was not responsive. So they said, well, what's his name? And I said, Kelly Springfield, Kelly B. Springfield. And, <laughs> and then she said, I can't believe you decided to name our son Kelly. So years later, years go by. I don't know any of this. Years later, uh, I'm in school and everyone calls me blue in my life. And no one ever told me that I had another name. (laughs) So I'm in school and they're doing roll call. It's Kitty Garden. And uh, I'm just looking around. This is all interesting. And I'm looking at all the big apple kind of stuff. And his teacher keeps saying something. And then I realize she's talking to me. And I, I go, what? And she says, um, I, when I say your name, you're supposed to say, I'm here. <laughs> and I said, when you say my name, I will say that. Because <laughs> this is your name. Your name is Kelly. And I said, oh, okay, I'm here. God. So that lasted about a week. And then they took me out of the kindergarten because I was really annoyed with the pace of learning. I've been told that I would learn <laughs> and I wasn't. So I was really annoyed. And so I took it out on the teacher and they just put me right into first grade. <laughs> in that room, 
I was the same. It was Kelly. But then in the next year, uh, the teacher's doing roll call, and she says, Ron, Ronald, Ron. And I'm looking around, and she goes, Springfield? And I go, oh, that that's my name. What is it? And she goes, your name is Ron. Why don't you know that? Oh, my God, your name is Ronald. <laughs> okay. So, whatever. Uh, that's fine. So, it's Ronald. The next year, I skip a grade again, and the woman starts calling. She's she's calling the roll call, and she says, um, <coughs> Stewart. Stewart. <laughs> and I go, here, I'm here. And she goes, oh, okay. And she keeps calling. And then she says, Kelly. And I go, hmm, I wonder if that's me. And so for a week, a week straight, she called me Stewart. Until one of my friends who lived a block away from me said, but Stuart, what do you think? And he raises his hand and he goes, that's not Stuart. This is Stuart. <laughs> and she says, why have you, why did you tell me your name was Stuart? And I said, I didn't tell you my name was Stuart. I said, I'm here. <laughs> I tell me Stuart. I don't care. And she sent me to the principal's office. Jeez. Because she thought I was, I don't know, making fun of her or something. So years later, uh, I wound up in a hospital because all of these things caught up to me and I'm trying to I can't tell you I'm, I, I don't know if other people have, have the same experience but trying to reconcile what I knew to be true internally from my experience and from my guide mm-hmm. trying to reconcile that with everything that was happening to me externally was really really difficult and I had no I had to do it on my own. I had no one I could that could help. There was no one in my life that I could turn to. And this was when the guide said it hasn't been decided yet. These are one of those pivotal moments in your life where you decide what you're going to be. Hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. So I wound up in the hospital and I realized that um, the victim was Kelly. That was the person uh, who, like my father used to force me to drink on my birthday. Uh, he would hold my jaw and force me to drink because they found it hilarious to see me emotional about something. And mm. one thing I was emotional about was that I would, I remembered every single thing. And I would tell them this. I remember every single thing that all of you have done. I won't always be small or little, or young. And you won't always be in power. You, oh, if you see me coming as an adult, you should run. Because <laughs> I'm there to hurt you. Hmm. And to my father, they just, they would laugh. I would tell him long, elaborate, this is how I'm going to harm you. This is how I'm going to kill you. It's not going to be quick. You are going to suffer because I'm training you. I'm teaching you. And they would laugh and laugh. I realized mm-hmm. that that was wrong. That was that part of my personality. And don't, you know, I know when most, when most kids are going through their teenage years, they have, you know, 24, 26 months of chemical imbalance where mm-hmm. they could be considered chemically insane. Imagine that for someone like me. So, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty bad. And I was... I'm still trying to decide. I didn't know 
how to be a decent person. I had no idea. Everything that these people ever taught me, for a long time, I thought sex could only be initiated if the person was asleep. Hmm. Can you imagine that? I thought that love was not hitting someone. Hmm. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. So at some point, I had to stop being Kelly, who was the victim, and I had to figure out how to not be Ron, the homicidal maniac. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, keep in mind that my father's father was a was criminally insane, and my mother's siblings were criminally insane. God. So the odds that that could happen to me was were very real. Those were very real uh, fears to me. So I decided I couldn't be either one of those things. I couldn't. I couldn't be the person that these people tried to make me. Mm-hmm. And the guy told me, start figuring out your name. Huh. And that's how it became RK. So so R for Ron, K for Kelly. So you acknowledge both. Yes. Yes. I'm neither. And I'm both. Right. But I'm, I'm way Interesting. more. Hmm. But when you were Ron, sometimes... Uh, you had experiences that you don't even have much memory of what happened and uh, to you for like days at a time. Is that the case? And uh, yeah, you you heard out that way. Okay. It started out with uh, moments or hours Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I would call it losing time and I became so concerned. It started out, uh, there's a psychological term for if, have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and your, your body isn't quite certain if you're, awake or sleepy or something yes. that makes your consciousness and you can't move. Uh-huh. Imagine that happening every night at the exact same time, 4, 10 a.m., and then hearing a different voice saying, I got a feeling, and having to force yourself to move, and then starting to see faces in, in the dark. And yeah. uh, so that's happening. And I told my great-grandfather, because again, I didn't know if this was something that simply happened on Earth. Right. I didn't know if this was something that everyone experienced. So I asked my great-grandfather about it, and he said, no, why? Is that happening to you? And I said, yes, all the time. And it's becoming concerning because this morning when it happened, I woke up in school. Oh, jeez. And he goes, well, what else happened? And I said, um... Well, I'm terrified all the time. I'm always scared. And I'm seeing rats everywhere. I, I had mm. to tell me my child with rats. And he goes, well, you just got rats on the brain. And that was the end of the discussion. And he and my great-grandmother laughed about it. And then I'm losing hours. And now I'm mm. losing days. And now, I, like once I woke up in a car with a woman driving. I'm a teenager. I have no idea where she, who she is. I have no idea. I have never seen this woman before. She's calling mm. me Ron, and she's talking to me like we're friends. And I'm smoking. I'm a smoker. Oh. Okay. And you're what? Oh. And huh. I, I'm like, okay. Another time I woke up, and I was no longer living with my great-grandparents. I was living with a Vietnamese family. Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, was it always yeah. this 4, 10 a.m.? Uh, every time. Uh, every time. Is that are, are those numbers somehow significant to you? I mean, other than the four yeah. ten a.m. 
Do you see them? No. Oh, okay. No, hmm. no, never, ever, ever. Uh, and so when I went to the hospital, that was something else I had to reconcile that this is my space. This is my choice now. Mm-hmm. And so when I left there, I left that behind. However, I went back to, I was still living with the hurt, the Vietnamese family. And uh, so I wound up going back there and they were freaking out because things were moving around the house and doors were slamming and that sort of thing. This entity or whatever was angry. And it was unfortunate, but you have to take a stand. You have to decide for yourself. You have to make a choice. And that's always what it's about to me. Uh, about a week so, after So that, this entity it like manifested a, itself through Ron. It's like that, a, like yeah. a pol- poltergeist experience uh-huh. where things were moving around, yeah. uh, off, falling hmm. off walls. and uh, Yeah, people hmm. saw images. And uh, I have a friend whose name is RK as well. Um, and he saw, during one of these manifestations, he saw... Uh, we were playing a game that I made up called the stories. It's a chance to exercise your, my imagination. It's like, I, I, so I'm a book and you're the main character and we go through the stories and it gives me a chance to learn about people without being direct about it. So mm-hmm. I learned through their choices, what kind of person, and he just freaks out. And the other two people in the room freak out because they see a guy in the corner melting, looking at them. Oh, and they geez. absolutely used to, to be around me after that. Mm. Huh. And so that sort of thing happened all the time. My sister, I think he's spoken to Joe with the, there's always a guy walking around in my house or there's a darkness or something like that. Um, that's just something that I've lived with. Do you still experience that? Not as much. I, I, I will tell you, I think that, um, when people, whenever I see someone with angels' wings tattooed on their back, mm-hmm. God bless them, I always think, I wonder for every one of those wings, if people know that there's also something attached to them that they have to make a choice about getting rid of. It's mm-hmm. the thing that feeds off their fear and their hunger. And sometimes you can feel it almost, you know, on your back. You can feel it through your shirt. You can feel mm-hmm. something attached to you. You have to make a choice about that. Ignoring it is not an option. But remembering that we're not alone on this planet is every time I see that, I always think that exact same thing. Yeah, I still experience it to this day. Hmm. Hmm. Um, One example of what you told me was how your parents made you and your sister pick pieces of debris out of the carpet, even though they had two vacuum cleaners in the house. And you compared that to picking cotton. And then the kicker is that your, this is strange, that your father sold you when you, uh, to your great grandfather when you were 10 years old for $286. The selling a human being, of course, is a reflection of human bondage, the sale of slaves. Um, How did that change your life? My God. Well, again, it was all a part of the same journey for me. Uh-huh. The interesting part was that he didn't view it as selling me. He viewed it as him sending his son to live somewhere else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. Like and a just happened to, <laughs> No, no. And he just happened to get money for mm-hmm. the phone bill for it. Mm-hmm. But, I, and I told him this, it doesn't matter how you view it you told me what I was worth to you mm-hmm. and I have to live with that for the rest of my life with that dollar amount. 
that is what you thought of me. But and yet you were able to forgive him. It's, it's not really about forgiving. It really isn't because it has nothing to do with me. All they're doing, you know, parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, whatever, all you're doing is launching a new entity. That's your job. However you choose to do it. And I've seen people try to hold back their their offspring, their progeny, their entities by binding them with stupid constructs of uh-huh. the girls don't cry or boys don't do that and all yeah. of this. You're supposed to push them forward and lift them up. And I simply understood that these people were not there to do that for me, but they were there to make me more functional. If, if I had been left to my own devices, I might never have spoken. I might never have uh-huh. heard that their abuse pushed me forward. So it was a catalyst. Yes. And it was one that apparently was necessary in order for me to be who I am. I Forgiving, forgiving them was never difficult. Getting away from them was difficult. Uh-huh. Yeah. But uh, in your teen years and after you were away from them living with your great-grandparents, you did uh you surprising for considering your background you did surprisingly well as a teenager in high school i mean you said you didn't uh, care for being a teenager and didn't like other teenagers so much but uh you actually uh you, you were able to skip a grade right and two grades yeah i i actually started college when i was 15 and the, the year before i had you know you have periods I just couldn't stand being around teenagers. Everything that they, and the teachers as well, I thought everything that they think is important, I just don't care about. Uh-huh. People were watching, you know, TV shows and that sort of thing. <clears throat> well, I was living with my great grandparents. One was born in 1902. <laughs> we didn't watch this. I knew every episode of Hee Haw and Gomer Pyle. <laughs> I knew every televangelist there was within a three state radius. I did not know anything and, or, and I didn't care about dance fever or any of those things that I mm-hmm. just found them fleeting and, and irrelevant and high school angst. And that's sort of, I just didn't care, but also I didn't know anything. Imagine dating, trying to date someone like me. I was a monster. <laughs> I was a holy monster. I had no idea. I had to relearn absolutely everything that those people taught me. Hmm. It was it was crazy. So I got rid of my lunch and I got rid of my free period so that I could take classes so that I could get out of high school as quickly as possible. Huh. And that meant going to college. I was hoping that in college I could have conversations mm-hmm. finally with people, which I couldn't seem to have. No one had real conversations with me. Uh, what did you major in in college? Psychology first, of course, uh-huh. because I, Excellent. like most people, I thought, well, I'm definitely needing some psychology, some therapy, <laughs> and then uh, uh, later on, communications. Uh, now I'm a master trainer. I have 38 different uh, certifications, so hmm. I, I'm still learning. I just became, I just got a pastry certification, as a matter of fact, last year because uh, I had downtime. Pastry. Pastry? Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Every every time I have clients, every time I see a client, they they ask, okay, you had downtime. What did you learn? Because that's <laughs> what I'm here to do. I'm always trying to learn something new. So, yeah. 
So now you're a master chef of pastries. <laughs> no, no, I'm a master no. trainer for human resource and that sort of thing. No, no, I knew uh, that. I, I just meant. Oh pastry. yeah, but for pastry, no, I just got a cert. I took a couple of classes and I got a certification. But to me, until I have a full, until I am a master chef, I'm not a chef. So, um, yeah, I, I, so I just love learning. I think learning is, mm-hmm. it's, my God, how people stop. I was thinking, do you remember those uh, Stretch Armstrongs? Uh, they were toys years ago that you yeah. could stretch their arms. Oh, right. And, yeah, and I always think of that as getting older. You know, what made that stretch was uh, high fructose corn syrup. So you can stretch it and, and it retains its shape. But after a while, it gets older and it becomes brittle and you can't mm-hmm. stretch it anymore. That's our brain. Yeah. And sometimes we forget that we have to stretch it. We have to keep stretching it. And I just love learning. So, yeah, I started mm-hmm. college and it was off to the races after that. I found out that I could go into a library and they would let me read anything in the library. Mm-hmm. It was heaven. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. You know, considering that you grew up in Chicago and uh, in your upbringing, it's amazing that as a teenager, you didn't get involved with gangs, you didn't get involved with drugs, and you were never confronted or arrested by police. How did that happen? Um, so I, mean, I was in Chicago until I was 10. Okay, yeah, that's and right. You're in Michigan. Yeah, then I moved around after that. Yeah. Uh, as far as confrontations, I was confronted by the police. The only guns I've ever had pulled on me were by police officers when I was mm-hmm. eight and nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, once I, they sent me to the grocery um, on Halstead. And so I would run from the house and they would time me to see how fast I could run uh, to the store, pick up something and then run back. Uh, so I was doing that and I it was the store was going to close. So I had to hurry. And the police officers pulled me over and pulled guns on me, and they laughed while they did it. Put me in the back of the car and were asking me my name and do you have any aliases? And they were laughing. <laughs> and I, they're like, you don't even know what that means. And I said, of course I know what that means. Why am I in the back of this car? And he goes, why do you talk like that? <laughs> I had no way to answer that, so I simply looked at them, which is what I usually did, and they let me go. They thought it was hilarious, though, all, the entire thing up to that. I was so shaken by that that I actually called my father, and and imagine calling your, not your primary abuser, but definitely one of your yeah. primary abusers, and saying, I, I don't feel, and having to explain emotions. Mm-hmm. For the first time, mm-hmm. I don't feel safe. I don't feel I can't. I can't leave here. I need mm-hmm. you to come here. And so he came, and I told him what happened, and he just slapped me and said, "Just deal with it." And then the <laughs> second time, I was playing football across the street from our house in one of the neighbors' house, and police just pulled up pull their guns on us and said, you all have to go inside. The sun's down. And we were like, uh, uh, and you know, the other kids are crying. The older kids just were ushering us, you know, go ahead and go forward. The reason I didn't get into drugs is because I have always understood that I'm very delicately balanced chemically. 
<laughs> so uh, I was hesitant to do drugs. And also, I saw so many people die from drinking and drugs. It took me years. Now, like last night, I had drinks. That's fine. But when I was younger, when I was still developing, I couldn't, I couldn't abide it. In fact, I was the person uh, in high school going to the alley where all the smokers and the drug people hung out with my Bible and trying to talk to them. I started a peer group for people to be able to come and talk out their problems rather than taking drugs. That's the kid I was. Wow. Yeah. Well, do you have a website, RK, where people can take a look at your, you know, the kind of stuff you teach and mentor and coach? Sure, yeah. Um, that is tsiexperience.com, so Training Standards International, mm-hmm. tsiexperience.com. And I have some stories on there. A lot of what I do is teaching through uh, stories and mm-hmm. through uh, getting people to think differently, not just to do something different, but right. understand the, the why behind it. Hmm. Just one other question, uh, uh, RK, before we wrap up. Uh, was the abuse from your, looking back now, was the abuse from your parents intentional? Did they know that it was wrong what they were doing? That's hmm. an interesting question. <laughs> um, think of it this way. Um, if you, have you ever burned your hand? Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay, so imagine this. You burn your hand, but it's really bad. Like your hand is on fire. It's still burning. And someone else comes into the room and for a split second, you think that it would help if they experienced your pain. Mm-hmm. So, for, okay. so you, you touch their hand and now their hand is burning, but it doesn't uh-huh. lessen yours. That's mm-hmm. what abuse really is. Okay. That's, that's mm-hmm. what that really is. Pass, passing it on. Yeah. And, right. Uh, and so I watched that with with my parents. I, I, I gave my parents, I'm giving my grandmother this gift right now. She's still alive. Both my mother and my father are dead, but I decided to give them the final gift, which was uh, I was in Boston and I was getting ready for a seminar. I was doing Publix back then. And I had not my mother I hadn't lived in the house with my mother since I was you know probably six years old and at the time I was 38 and so my siblings called me and I said well we're not taking care of her she has dementia and you're the oldest boy so you need to take care of her and I said you guys grew up with her I I haven't seen her in decades and they said well you're the oldest boy so you need to do it and I said I'm in a different state I don't even live in Illinois. Do you understand that? And so I thought about it. And so I moved to Chicago Hmm. and I started helping her. So she had dementia. This woman that had been kidnapped, this woman that had left us alone for days at a time, starving in the house, this woman that had just beaten us, that had brought her clients into our home and her clients abused us physically and sexually. This same woman, she was gone. It, the the dementia had taken her and left the vessel very nearly empty. Hmm. And the people who knew her didn't couldn't see it because they were so wrapped up in it to themselves. But I got to see this woman 
in a more a pure form than mm-hmm. I had ever seen it. And so I was traveling 300 days out of the year at the time. And I, she had remarried and I meet her husband who happened, happened to be like 14 years older than me. And <laughs> I'm going over on my dates off when I'm in town and I'm cleaning their house and I'm cooking for them for the week and I'm driving them around and, and I'm having conversations with Linda, with my mother, but not Linda. So none of the vitriol, none of the abuse. And what I was trying to tell my siblings is, you you guys are missing this opportunity. This is a gift from God that you will never, ever get again. And the gift is a chance for you to have a a court thesis. It's cathartic to talk to her without harm. And you know how she never took care of you? You get to show that you're better, not to her, but to you. You get to be better take care of her you would do mm-hmm. it for a stranger do it for your mother and they most of them just would not do it my sister joe who is solidly on the spectrum with me of course she moved in to do it but mm-hmm. at the end this abusive woman uh, in my opinion she i got to give her this gift of this is what caring is this is what you could have done you could have made these choices it's okay that you didn't because we got here anyway did she understand that? No, no, she had dementia. And yeah. the, the, the act was she just, um, every time we wound up having to put her in an assistant care facility because she was very dangerous to be around children, mm-hmm. uh, just because she would think she was cooking, you know, and light something on fire and that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, but we became so close that I had, uh, <clears throat> I had several heart attacks. And the day after I had a, uh, well, two days after I had a double bypass, the same night her husband committed suicide. Jeez. And the next day she wandered with a house full of people. She wandered out of the house hmm. and no one knew where she was because she would just start walking. So he put out the silver alert and all that. But my brother is helping me. I'm walking around the neighborhood with and asking my guide to point me, to send mm-hmm. me to her. And so I'm like, oh, we have to go this way. We have to go this way. And so I'm, I can barely walk. And finally, my brother said, I, you're not going to kill yourself over this woman. And he's my adopted brother, but he, we met her basically at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so she died, I think, with that gift. But for my father, his gift required something different. His gift, and I was trying to tell him, he hated his father for treating him the way that he treated me. And mm-hmm. his father hated his father, my great-grandfather, who my father sold me to. God. And he hated his father. His father, the way my great-grandfather found out he was moving, is his father was shooting at the kids to get them off of his land. That's how they found out Jeez. it was time for them to go. All the yeah. way back to slavery. I'm one yeah. of few people I can That's incredible. All the way back to slavery. And I was telling my father, I... I've been trying to give you this gift. The gift is your son won't hate you when you die. Hmm. And you you can decide if you're going to hate. But for the first time in our family history, this gift is freedom from that. I am the last one. I chose that when I was much younger. I was, I was not even a teenager. And everyone goes, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I said, well, I won't have kids. 
this stops with me. <laughs> wow. Mm. So Boy, I don't know. Incredible. Yeah. We were talking on the phone. I was in New Jersey and I said, uh, he called me. He goes, I just wanted to talk to you. You know, I I never admitted everything. And I, I hear what you're saying. I hear that you said that you need to hear me admit it. So he admitted all the abuse. Mm. And he goes, now what? And I said, oh, Joseph, that wasn't for me. <laughs> that was for you. <laughs> yeah. You've been lying about it for so long. How does it feel to simply say the truth? Mm. And he goes, well, what now? And I said, well, listen, he lived in Connecticut at the time. And I said, um, I'm going to be uh, doing um, a speech in two weeks by you. Why don't we go out and have a drink? And he goes, you would you would have a drink with me? And I said, why wouldn't I? Of course, if as long as you can live in truth, I have no problem with you. You will mm-hmm. never be my dad, but you're my father. Mm-hmm. So sure, I don't hate you. I wish you could understand that. I'm trying to give you a gift. And he said, well, you should know that I only drink scotch. And I said, what? I only drink scotch. <laughs> One time. And he goes, Johnny Walker Ray. And I go, that's what I drink. Hmm. And it's the only thing my father and I ever had in common. <laughs> wow. And he died the very next day. Jeez. But he died happy, right? Or happier? Yeah, his wife called me. His wife called me back and said she had never seen him like that. She said he was crying and he was laughing. Huh. And she just thanked me over and over. She said, I have never seen him like this. And I was like, that's awesome. So, yeah, I, I think I was able to give him the gift. Great. Because, see, again, he said to me, nobody ever showed me how to love. And mm. I said, sometimes you have to show other people how you love. You can't expect them to show you. Yeah. So he got that gift. But his mother is still alive. He, he got me one last time. <clears throat> uh, after he died, two days later, I get a phone call. And it's one of my siblings I very rarely speak to. And she said, um, Joseph told us that you were going to pay for his mother and her friend to come to his funeral, if you'd agree to that. And of course I hadn't. And <laughs> part of the name change that you were asking about before, he changed my name once or twice so that he could steal my identity and buy it. <laughs> So this was his last little little trick. Yeah. And I yeah. said, you know what? I, I'll be happy to pay for her to go to her son's funeral. More than happy <laughs> to do it. Yeah. And no, I'm still, I know they, they try to fill me and people do this in your life. They try to deposit that fire, that anger, that hatred, the vitriol. And no, I, I make a different choice. I, I'll be happy to pay for her to go to her son's mm-hmm. funeral. And they said, well, are you coming? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. I have no I, I have no one to say goodbye to. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So his mother and I hadn't spoken much. And she was, she comes from this, the culture of abuse as well. Slave descendant culture sometimes is horrific. She was married at 14 and and. Told she was pregnant. She never had sex. All that, but she lived with that. And now, that woman, after two years, he's been dead for two years. And I've called her almost every single day. Hmm. She laughs, and it is one of the happiest, most delightful laughs I can, I've ever heard. Wow. But it took her to be ninety years old for her to be able to do it. 
So you you've really broken the whole chain. I'm of trying music. really, yeah. really hard. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Wow. Well, RK. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much, and and thank you for sharing all this. It's really, I don't know how you're still here, but (laughs) I'm I'm amazed. My purpose isn't over yet. (laughs) Well, that's good. And you're, are you able to do your work at all with the pandemic? Uh, You can't have uh, on-site workshops, but are you able to do it online or uh, through? Yeah, we do. Uh, So I'm using Captivate and WebEx and that sort of thing, but. Also, this is a great time. This this pandemic, I may be the only person on the planet who has been happy. <laughs> it's alone time, and I get to think, and I postulate, and I get to experience um, just what life is like here. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes I'm moving so much, I'm traveling so much, and I get to, I have a sci-fi book that I'm working on that's just funny to me. It's, it's, I just get to, this has been amazing for me. Mm-hmm. And seeing the world change, I think everyone can feel this change coming, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And watching this build up is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Let's hope it results in a more equitable world, happier. World. Yeah. Well, like I said, I know that the species has either rises or falls together, mm-hmm. and I, I hope that we can figure that out. That the the vibration and the color of the active connections is way more important than the color of our fur. Right. Yeah. Thank you very much. Wow, this has been great. Thanks so much, RK. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye now. Have a good day. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Mystical Underground. Listen to the podcast at www.themysticalunderground.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Visit the blog, blog blog.synchrosecrets.com. Visit the book site, phenomena111.com. Send us email, podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical. For eight hours. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's that's a pretty. Yeah, I guess you uh, you gotta gotta be careful. You need something more than a pinch of that and a pinch of this, right? You sure well, do. Well, <laughs> Trish, Trish's mistake was she licked the spoon. Uh, okay. <laughs> that that's was, what you do when you make brownies, <laughs> <laughs> but not those. <laughs> yeah. That was a big mistake. <laughs> yeah, I gave those brownies away. I gave them to Megan, and she said, "Well, I'll give them to my friends." And her roommate ate one. <laughs> he also was comatose. Yeah, Evan did. Yeah, Evan did. Gotta, yeah, and he's a uh, he's comes, a real smoker. Here comes our, <laughs> comes our guests. Hang on, hang on. Okay. <laughs>